If you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to continue in our study of God's Word this morning. And if you've been with us, you know that we are studying a time in Israel's history when these were dark days. Now, these were the days of the judges, the period of the judges. And during this time, we know uh, from the book of Judges itself uh, that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And so God would give his people a series of judges to rule over them, but uh, many times they would turn from God, they would turn from his word, and that's very much what we've seen during this time of 1 Samuel. Uh, the, people have gone, have, the people of God have gone into battle uh, with their enemies, the Philistines, and they have been defeated multiple times in battle. Many of them have died. And so the, people, the, excuse me, the enemies of God's people, in defeating them, uh, they took the holy ark of God. God's people had taken it into battle, really out of superstition, thinking somehow they could harness the power of God, and uh, they quickly found that they had not truly turned to God. God allowed their enemies to defeat them. The ark was captured, but now uh, God, completely on his own, has returned the ark to his people. It's come to an area called Beth Shemesh. And yet the people still aren't right with God. And so they take the ark and they take these golden images that are sent with the ark and they basically begin to worship these things and treat them like an idol. And so God strikes down even more of them. And so they do what God's enemies had done. They think, well, if we can just get rid of the ark and send it somewhere else, we'll be okay. And that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we went through verse 2 last Lord's Day, but we're going to pick back up in verse 2 uh, this Lord's Day in our study of God's Word. And at a reverence for God's Word, if you're able, if you would stand together as I read for us. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel 7, beginning there in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all of the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines." So the people, put away, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord daily only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel were gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar, 
Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And the text we read this morning is filled with some unfamiliar places and battles and you leading your people to victory. And I pray as we consider what's taking place here, Lord, that we might learn what it is for us to return to you, what it is required for us to repent and trust in you. And we pray that you would lead us to do this. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to ask me where I was at 9.03 a.m. on pretty much any day on a calendar, I'm not so sure I could tell you, but if you ask me where I was at 9.03 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was standing in my living room at 2100 Grider Pond Road in Bowling Green, in front of a television set, I was standing beside my wife Sandy. We had just received a call from a coworker telling us to turn on the TV and to see what was taking place in downtown Manhattan. And as we watched the news at 9.03 a.m. that morning, we saw a plane fly into one of the Twin Towers. Uh, the commentators were confused, as we were at that point. They thought it was a replay of what had already taken place. And we soon realized, no, this was the second plane hitting the second tower. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. And for those of you who are old enough to remember that day, you can likely remember it too. Even this week, perhaps, as we cross the 19th anniversary of 9-11, you may have had conversations with your kids or your grandkids or friends or coworkers saying, where were you when this happened? And telling them where you were when this happened. Some 19 years later, we're still thinking about these events, and we are still grieving and mourning that day when we were attacked by Islamic terrorists, and hundreds of people lost their lives. For 19 years, nearly 20 years now, we have mourned as a nation. As we come to this section in 1 Samuel 7, we find events that should be a bit familiar to us then. For some 20 years now, there has been a national mourning among the people of Israel. They have too been conquered and attacked by an enemy, and now they are mourning what has taken place. In addition to this attack that's taking place, we find them at a point where they had turned away from God. And so now they are lamenting over these things and an invitation is offered to them. An opportunity of repentance. An opportunity to return to God. And friends, that's an invitation that we see God offering us even still today. 
Over and over throughout God's Word, He gives us the opportunity to turn from our sin and to trust in Him. But in order to do that, there's some important truths we need to understand. And some important truths that I believe this text reminds us of. And so I want to walk through three points of application that I think we find from 1 Samuel 7 that very much apply to us today in 2020. That that call of national repentance, that call of the people of God to repent in Israel is the same call for us to repent today. And I believe these truths are important for us to understand in order to come to that repentance. And so let's look through them as we'll walk through this text, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Number one, we find there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. A difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And we come to a point now, as we read in verse 2 there, where the people of Israel have been lamenting. That word means that they've been sorry and sorrowful for 20 years. Now the first question that should come to us is, well, what did they feel sorry for? And we don't know exactly the answer to that question. It very well could have been that they were sorry and mourning and grieving over all the men who had been killed in all these battles. When we read about two battles that took place between God's people and the Philistines, we read about then God striking down even more of the Israelites as they worshipped the ark of God and those pagan objects that were returned with it. And so depending on our understanding of the Hebrew text, this means that somewhere between 34,000 and 84,000 Israelites had died in a pretty short period of time. You think about the magnitude of that number of people and how that would have affected so many among the nation of Israel. It's likely that every single Hebrew family knew someone or even loved someone who was killed at one of those events. And that grief would last. That grief would continue. And it would lead them to national grieving and mourning for 20 years and even more. It may have been that some of them felt sorry about their sin. And we find that this is a point in Israel's history where they had turned away from God. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. I mean, they, they knew the religious lingo. They, they, they knew that they had to turn to God in some way, shape, or form. And so, kind of going through a religious ritual, they had taken the ark of God from the place where it was right to be. And they had taken it among them into battle, thinking they could harness the power of God. And this superstition did not help them. This superstition revealed their hearts that they weren't truly trusting in God. They weren't turning from their sin. And so, perhaps God has been getting their attention. As we read in this text, we find that even now through these 20 years, they are being attacked and being conquered by the Philistines. And so for some, they may have felt lament and sorrow over their sin as a nation and their sin as people. We don't know for sure what the root of the people's sorrow was, but we do know that their sorrow was not a sorrow that led them to repentance. And how do we know this? Well, we know this as we look at the next verse, verse 3. Because here God calls the Israelites to genuine repentance. Notice again what He says through Samuel. Samuel says to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord... And so to this point in these 20 years, they haven't returned to the Lord. But now he says, if you're going to do it with all your heart, then you need to put away the foreign gods 
and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. We find here that the Israelites, during this whole time of national mourning, they were still holding on to these Canaanite idols. That these idols that represented the primary God among, gods among the Canaanites. Really the husband and wife gods of the Canaanites. The gods that represented fertility. The gods that represented a blessing over the weather and their crops. The gods of the storms. That all this time when they were sorrowful and they were lamenting, they were holding on to these pieces of this pagan religion. And they were unwilling to let go. So for 20 years, they felt sorry. But they didn't feel a godly sorrow. Because this sorrow did not lead them to repentance. No, this was a worldly sorrow. A sorrow that grieved them, but did not grieve them enough for them to give up their sin and their idol worship. You see, we find there's a great difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he tells us there, there are these two kinds of sorrow. He says there's a sorrow that leads us to repentance and then leads us to salvation. And that's a godly sorrow. That's a brokenness over our sin that leads us to a point where we're willing to let go and turn away from any and all sin in our life to truly trust in Christ. He says that's the kind of sorrow that saves us. But there's another kind of sorrow. A sorrow that many of us are familiar with. And it's a worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow that you feel, perhaps, when you get caught. <laughs> it's a sorrow you feel, perhaps, when the consequence of your sin is devastating on people in your lives, and you feel bad about it. It's a sorrow you feel that's just a general form of guilt when you've done something wrong. But if that does not lead you to repent from sin and trust in Christ, then that is not a sorrow that leads to salvation. That is a worldly sorrow. Not a godly sorrow. And friends, worldly sorrow is what we see taking place here among the Israelites for some 20 years. Because as sorry as they felt, they were still going home every day to their false gods. As sorry as they felt, they still had on display in their homes these idols to these Canaanite gods. As sorry as they felt, they weren't willing to turn away from their sin and make a true change in their life. And friends, that's the exact type of sorrow we see played out time and time again in our lives and in the lives of our nation. You may remember as I do the the Sunday following September 11th, 2001. I was a pastor in Bowling Green, and that Sunday we noted record attendance. And we saw throughout our nation record attendance. People just flooded into churches all over our country. People dropped to their knees in a time of national lament and prayer. And within a couple of weeks, it was business as usual. Within just a couple of weeks, those people weren't filling our pews anymore. There was this momentary lament that led people towards some sort of faith, but it quickly passed. Why? Because it was not a sorrow that led them to repentance. It was just a worldly sorrow that so many experience. 
And I wonder how many of us this morning are experiencing it still. We sin, we feel guilty, we apologize, we vow to try harder, we say we're never going to do it again, but we find ourselves right back in the same spot and in the same sin over and over and over again. Because our heart never changes. Because we're not truly repentant. Friends, this morning, we don't need more worldly sorrow. We need godly sorrow. We need repentance. And now after 20 years of worldly sorrow, now the Israelites are at a point of brokenness where we're going to see some true repentance in their life. So verse 4 tells us the people of Israel, that they put away all these false gods and they serve the Lord only. I read that text, I couldn't help but think in my own life, Richard, what do you need to put away? I wonder for you here this morning, what, what is it you need to put away? Well, what's in your life this morning that leads you not to repentance, but leads you to sin? Well, what is it that you're putting in front of your eyes that, that leads you to lustful and immoral thoughts? Well, what relationships are in your life that lead you time and time again not to walk by faith, but to walk by sight and to walk in the ways of the world? Well, what are the things that you're a part of or you're allowing in your life today that bring you to a point of perhaps worldly sorrow, but not a point where you're willing to turn from them? What is it that you need to let go of today and repent of? There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And what the people of God need this morning is true godly sorrow and repentance. It's what we need here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. It's what we desperately need throughout our nation and throughout our world. Point two. Another point of application we see here is that prayer should be our first response instead of our last resort. Prayer should be our first response instead of our last resort. Notice now that the people of Israel are truly repentant. That there's a change taking place in their life. And so now they are gathering together and Samuel is going to pray for them for deliverance from the Philistines. Now again, the indication here is the Philistines are continuing to attack them and continuing to conquer them, but something's changed now. Their hearts have changed, and so God is calling them not just to this repentance, but He's calling them now to trust in Him, to come to Him in prayer. Of course, in this context, Samuel is the one who goes before God on behalf of the people. He's the one who intercedes for them. So now he calls them together, and he says he will pray for them. Now notice how... Often, prayer is mentioned, the importance of prayer in this passage. Verse 5, then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistine. Verse 9, Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, and the Lord answered him. I mean, can you see a change among the people of God here from when we first started reading and studying what was taking place in this time in 1 Samuel chapter 1? 
I mean, as we walk through those early chapters of 1 Samuel, the only real prayer we see there is Hannah praying and crying out to God for a child because she was barren. And it appears that that happens so rarely that Eli, the priest at the temple, thinks he's drunk. (laughs) And so the more likely scenario for Eli, the priest, was that people would show up drunk and babbling rather than actually genuinely praying to God. It seems that prayer is all but absent among God's people. And now, just a few chapters later, but many years later, the people are genuinely repentant. God has gotten their attention. They've turned from their sin. And now there is genuine prayer among the people of God. They understand their need to seek God and to seek His favor. And yet, think of all that's taken place up until now. (laughs) Oh, if they had truly sought God, and prayed early on in this story, think of how many things would be different. Think of how many lives would have been saved. But no, it's only after decades of grief and loss, it's only after tens of thousands upon tens of thousands being killed in battle, that they're truly repentant, and now they find themselves called to prayer. It's a good reminder to us, friends, that prayer... Indeed, should be our first response and not our last resort. For those of you who are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you may remember a picture of this. There's a point in Bunyan's story where uh, Christian and Hopeful in their journey, they find themselves uh, captured in a castle. Uh, They find themselves in this castle, uh, uh, the Doubting Castle, and there's a giant there, a great despair and And they are overwhelmed with despair in their journey to the point that they consider taking their own lives. It seems all is lost. It seems their journey is over. It seems they have no hope at all. And it's in that moment that Christian reaches down in his pocket and remembers a key that he has called all prayer. And he uses this key of all prayer to unlock the gates of Doubting Castle. I think what Bunyan captures there is a picture of prayer so often in our lives. That it's in moments of grief and sorrow and despair and when we're just overwhelmed, when we've tried every other thing in our life, that we stumble across one more thing. Oh yes, now I can pray. It's when we're at the end of our rope, when we're at the end of our efforts, when we've exhausted all resources that we turn to God in prayer. And friends, it should not be so. Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Bunyan said it well, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. And I believe one of the reasons so often we're so prayerless is because of the sin that we have not turned from. It's because our lives are filled with worldly sorrow, but not true godly sorrow. But when we're truly repentant and we have authentic faith, we understand, friends, that prayer is not a suggestion from God. It is a command from God. Throughout God's Word, we see this command. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning. If I did, I hope, I believe most hands would go up. Are you anxious about anything? <laughs> Our world's fooled with opportunities to be anxious. We are overwhelmed easily at the things of this world. Are you anxious about anything? Well, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious. 
Well, how's that so? How can we be a people so filled with anxiety and yet follow this command not to be anxious? Well, he doesn't end there. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is our first response to be when we're anxious? We are to pray. When we are overwhelmed, we are to pray. When we are suffering, we are to pray. When we're in despair, we are to pray. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Jesus commands us to pray. In Matthew 6, when He teaches the disciples how to pray, He does not say when or if you pray. He says when you pray. The assumption is that prayer will be there. And it should be our first response instead of our last resort. And then third, we need constant reminders of the Gospel in our life. A final point of application from this text. We need constant reminders of the gospel in our life. And so what takes place here is the people of Israel repent. They turn from their sin. They trust in God. And then God rescues them. That They turn from their idols in the form of false gods who supposedly could control the weather. And what happens? The true God who can control the weather thunders. <laughs> And he overwhelms the Philistines. And they're in confusion. And the people of God defeat them and are victorious. And so Samuel, knowing the people, and knowing their tendency to forget these times when God rescues His people. I mean, after all, think of all the times He has rescued them up to this point And how forgetful they are. In 1 Samuel, it seems the ones who remember the most are the Philistines. That they're the ones who draw back to the exodus and what happened. Not the people of God. And so here, Samuel understands this. And so he places a reminder there. An Ebenezer. It means stone of help. And it's to remind God's people of the place that he helped them and that he delivered them. And that name Ebenezer should sound familiar to you because we sang it last week. Come thou fount of every blessing. That great hymn that was inspired by this very text. It's a picture, picture of God rescuing His people and raising this stone monument as a reminder. That's what inspired a 22-year-old pastor named Robert Robinson to write these lyrics in 1758. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by God, thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. We raise our Ebenezer. We raise that reminder of the cross of Calvary. Where we're reminded of the gospel through that Ebenezer in our life. And here, this Ebenezer, this stone for God's people, it stood to remind them of God's rescue and God's help. But there's a double meaning to it. Because we've seen this name before. You go back just a few chapters to 1 Samuel 4, and you find the name of the place where the Philistines conquered God's people was Ebenezer. And so there's a double meaning here. 
in a sense, for the people of God. As they would look to that stone, they would be reminded of their sin. They would be reminded of that time when they did not trust God, when they turned and went their own way. And at the same time, they would be reminded of the mercy and grace of God. That while they were yet sinners, God sent them a deliverer. He sent them Samuel. He sent them this voice calling them to repentance. And they turned and they trusted and God rescued and God delivered. One commentator I read this week said it this way. He said, all that was lost through sin in the first Ebenezer event was restored through repentance in the second. What a picture for them. And what a picture for us. Because friends, that's the reminder we have every time we look upon the cross of Jesus today. And we are reminded when we look to the cross of our sin and our debt, and we are reminded of the one who paid it in full on the cross. The grace and the mercy of God. That's what reminders so often do for us. And it's important for us to have these reminders. On September 11th, 2001, nine minutes after the plane struck the South Tower, of the World Trade Center, a man named Wells Crowther called his mother and left this message. Mom, this is Wells, and I wanted you to know that I'm okay. Wells knew that his parents would be worried. He worked on the 104th floor of the second tower, and so once he got to a point of safety, he called to say that all would be well, and that did comfort his parents until the hours went by and they didn't hear from him again. And then days passed and they didn't hear from him. And then weeks passed. And the reality set in among Wells' parents that his life had been lost that day. His mother was confounded by this because her son had called when he was at a point of safety. How could he be safe and yet still be killed that day? And she searched among the stories of survivors just trying to find some hint, some piece of information that might give her a clue as to what happened to her son that day. She started noticing among these survivor accounts this recurring story of a young man with a red bandana around his nose and mouth. And as she read the descriptions of this man and even followed up and called the people who shared these stories, she soon found descriptions of her son. Her son Wells, who had grown up at the firehouse with his father and his grandfather. Her son Wells, who was a volunteer firefighter. Her son Wells, who always carried this token, or this uh, trademark red bandana with him that his father had given him as a child. Always there in his pockets. Her son Wells, who by all accounts, once he was safe, went back into that tower. Not once, not twice, but close to 20 times. And saved at least 18 people from death. And he would have saved more had the tower not collapsed on him. The President of the United States, at the dedication of the National 9-11 Memorial, shared Wells' story and held up a red bandana, a bandana that still remains there at that memorial, a bandana that reminds everyone who looks at it of the sacrifice of one man that saved many. That's the power of reminders. I read that story a number of years ago, and I've yet to look at a red bandana and not be reminded of Wells Crowther. It's a reminder of a man's sacrifice. 
Friends, how much more should we be reminded when we look upon the cross of Christ of a man who died not just for a few, but for the sins of us all? How much more should we be reminded every time we come to the Lord's table together of the body and the blood of our Lord who took our place? How much more should we be reminded every time we look upon those baptismal waters and we see one who is buried in death with Christ and raised to walk in a new life? These things remind us of an experience we have had, of a trust we have placed in Christ. But if we have not placed our trust in Him, well, these aren't reminders at all. And so this morning, there is an invitation for us. It's an invitation that God's been giving to His people for years. It's an invitation He'll continue to give until Christ returns. The question is, have you responded to that invitation? Have you looked upon the cross and the grace that God offers there and turned from your sin, not through worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow, where you're willing to leave everything behind and place your full trust in Jesus? If you have done that, then you can sing these words and truly understand them. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our guilt and our sin. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. That is the grace we celebrate this morning. And that is the grace that calls us to repentance and faith. So if you would stand together as we offer this time of invitation, I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to be down front here to pray with you. And we do invite you this morning to come and respond to God's Word. It may be that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work that you've come to see this morning that while your life has been filled at times with worldly sorrow, you've yet to have godly sorrow and now God is placing that on you. Now there's a sorrow that's leading to repentance. Now is the opportunity for you to turn and respond to this invitation and place your trust in Jesus. And we want to celebrate that with you. And so I'd love to pray with you about that. I'd love to talk with you about that. It may be that, that you have... Sorrow in your life, suffering in your life, despair in your life, anxiety in your life. And you just need someone to pray with you this morning. And it'd be my privilege to do that. And so we invite you to come. We invite you to pray. I'll pray with you. You can pray there where you are during this time of invitation. But first, if you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the marvelous grace that you offer us. The free gift that brings us to salvation. Father, You tell us clearly in Your Word that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of Your glory. And that what we deserve, what we have earned, the wages of our sin is death. We are deserving of Your wrath. We are deserving of defeat today. But You demonstrate Your love toward us. And now while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And if we will confess this morning, Christ is Lord, 
and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Father, you tell us in Romans 10, 13, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I pray for any this morning who's yet to call upon your name, that they would, and that they would place their full and whole trust in you today. Lord, I pray for us that you would remind us as we sing of your grace, grace, marvelous grace that has saved us redeem us. We thank you for it as we sing about it now. In Jesus' name, amen.